Good morning. We continue our study in Romans this morning. Just a quick reminder what the outline of the book of Romans is. We haven't really touched on this in a little while. We are in chapters 1 through 4. We're still in chapter 3 this morning. And that is uh, basically a description on Paul's part of God's right action. Why God is in a position uh, to bring humanity to accountability in relationship to its ignoring of his law that it has both uh, covered and hidden, whether uh, through uh, conscious and unconscious ways, it has hidden the truth of God that is revealed in all of creation. It has ignored the law that has been given. And therefore, God has the ability and the responsibility as creator to act. In verses, uh, chapters 5 through 8, there will be a description of a new covenant. God deals with his people in covenant. He commits relationally to them over time and space through this relationship called a covenant, which we will unpack even more as we head into chapter 5. There is new covenant and new creation. That the new covenant leads to this recreation, this new creation of the human beings and of all of creation itself. Chapters 9 through 11 is going to unpack God's faithfulness to unbelieving Israel over many generations. And then finally in chapters 12 through 16, the faithfulness and fellowship that is part of the new kingdom of God. So the implications of what happens in the earlier part of the book. Most of Paul's books, in fact all of them, you would argue, are divided into two main categories. The indicative and the imperative, as some scholars describe it. That which is true and that which we are to do in response to what is true. And Romans certainly fits into that outline. Where we are right now is that it's been a pretty heavy dose of human brokenness and depravity. Uh, you can imagine that as Phoebe is reading this to the first hearers in Rome, there she's about 10 minutes into reading Romans. And you could imagine it's getting a little tense. We've needed to take a couple of deep breaths as we have read about human brokenness and our propensity, our tendency, our regular habits of brokenness and sin and how God is right in his judging. And one can imagine that the Jewish folks in the room are beginning to feel a little uncomfortable, a little bit like when is Paul going to take his foot off our neck? Did we ever do anything right? Maybe they were feeling a little bit like some white males that I know. Is there anything we've ever done right? And then... We get to chapter 3, verse 9 and through 20. As if Paul hadn't been pointed enough, Paul says this, What then are the Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave and they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of the asp is under their lips. 
Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would be merciful again to the preaching of your word. Paul's collection of these psalms and the quote from Isaiah have never been easy to read. We pray, Lord, that the comfort contained in each one of those psalms and the context of your love and grace would allow the weight and the freedom to sit firmly on your people. We pray, Lord, that whatever is said this morning that is not true would quickly be forgotten. In Christ's name, amen. There were signs all over uh, in German and in English and French and several other languages that say, don't climb on the wall. Well, as a junior in high school, the first thing one has to do when one is standing next to the Berlin Wall is to pretend to climb over it. Right, So there's pictures of me hoisting my friends up over the, well, not over the top of the Berlin Wall. It got a little dangerous if you stuck your head above the top. Uh, there's a famous illustration, at least famous to me because I can't forget it, of a pastor talking about how he was driving through the Central Valley of California at one point, driving through some peach groves. Uh, it, on the radio, they were talking about some government program or some overabundance of peaches and how the farmers were going to have to let all of the peaches sit and rot in the orchard. But of course, if you got out of your car at that moment and you took one, it would still be stealing. And the pastor's driving through and he'd never had any interest in pulling over and grabbing one of those peaches. And he said, now, instantaneously, I had a desire to pull over and have one of those peaches that was going to go to waste both because I knew that it was against the law and it really seemed quite silly to waste all of those peaches. And as Paul says here at the end of our section in verse 20, it is through the law that we have a greater knowledge of sin. Yes, sometimes we are tempted because we had no idea that that was a sin to begin with. And in our perverse human nature, broken and fallen, when somebody tells us we can't do something, we have a tendency to increasingly be interested in trying to do exactly that. And then there is, of course, the tendency, as we've already looked at in the earlier chapters of Romans, which is that when we are confronted by God's revealed truth, there are ways in which we try and avoid and hide from its power and its weight. How do we know as believers, how we're responding, or if we're responding well to this revelation. My encouragement this morning is going to be to work backwards through these, not to talk about in what ways we may or may not do these, or in what ways parts of this uh, section may or may not be applicable to one or all of us. 
but to try and come from the perspective of repentance. The assumption here that Paul desires for us to have is since I have, since I would, likely, since I actually do these things. Thanks be to God for turning the light on. What is our response? The biblical encouragement in verse 18 is, in one way or another, repentance. And you say, E.C., I don't see that in uh, verse 18. It says, there's no fear of God before their eyes. Well, we know that the rest of Scripture tells us that the beginning of wisdom is the fear of God. And the wisest thing to do is to not follow our own path, but repent, which is a turning of 180 degrees and now following God. So we are going to unpack a little bit this morning what it means to turn around and how these particular Psalms and Isaiah that Paul quotes gives us an opportunity to see both God's firm description of our temptation and our failings as well as His abundant mercy in the midst of it. If you have your scriptures, please turn with me to Psalm 36, which is the quotation uh, for the verse 18 of Romans 3. Psalm 36 starts out this way. Transgressions speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no one who fears God before his eyes, for he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are troubled and deceitful. He has ceased to act wisely and, is, and do good. He plots trouble while in his bed, and he sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. And then Paul, assuming that we would keep reading and know Psalm 36, this is what the psalmist says next. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast, you save, O Lord. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house. And you give them drink from the rivers of your delight. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. Oh, continue your steadfast love to those who know you. And your righteousness to the upright in heart. The psalm continues. But that is the context for Paul's quotation from Psalm 36. Yes, absolutely. Paul is saying that God's people, which is what the psalmist is saying, turn from his wisdom. And in the same psalm, he says, the goodness of God is present for you. And we have a God who redeems and saves and puts his wings over you and shelters you. Will you repent? Will you turn back towards him? Or do we feel coming up inside us, a desperate need to defend or explain, 
to somehow justify the things that we have done or left undone? Do we fear God? Is that what is before our eyes? The reverence and the awe of the Almighty who lifts up the broken, who restores His creation? Or is, what before our, or is what is before our eyes the immediate and the temporal? The fear of others. The fear of shame. The fear of being needy or dependent. Our fears are legion. And yet the only fear that gives us life is a reverence for the Creator. All other fears that come before our eyes rob us of our humanity. That's what Paul is saying. That's why he quotes 36. Not because he delights to once again crush these poor Romans who are just having their first contact with Paul. And within 10 minutes, he writes this hit list. Greatest hits of God's firm proclamation on the human brokenness. The next ones, if we're going from the bottom up, verses 15 through 17, come from Isaiah 59, verses 7 through 8. And again, if you have your scripture, always encourage you to to, uh, turn to Isaiah. Isaiah 59, the context is God's work against evil and oppression. Verse 7 to 9 says, Their feet run to evil, and they are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are their highways. The way of peace they do not know, and they do not, and there is no justice in their path. But the beginning of that section, behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or the ear so dull that it cannot hear. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or His ear dull that He cannot hear. He hears our prayers. He hears our needs. This is a God who is listening and will act on behalf of His people and those who do righteousness. Yes, there is a warning about what happens when we embrace those things that run crooked. And why Isaiah says, thank goodness there's one who's coming who will lay a path that is straight and a highway that leads to the truth of who God is. There is no life, no health. Isaiah is telling the children of Israel as they head into a time of exile... describing in the midst of the fear and the political turmoil, the economic instability, the tendency of all people, and tragically even God's people in Israel, to become swift to shed blood for ruin and misery, moving away from a life of peace, But God's arm is not short, and His ear is not dull. Do we repent? Do we know the propensity of human beings or ourselves when we are fearful? 
to fall into the same trap as Judah, as it did as it felt the array of Assyria and Babylon and Egypt around it to make peace treaties that God warned against, to follow all matter of human pragmatism. To be sure, we live uh, in Judah, but we still live in a time when instability and fear can cause us to be too quick, too easy to shed blood. Do we repent? Verses 14, come, verse 14, comes from Psalm 10, verse 7. Again, encouraging a turning and a right use of one's mouth. I want to take verses 13 and 14 together, although verse 13 comes from Psalm 5, verse 9, and the middle part, the venom asp under their lips, is from Psalm 140, verse 3. Monty prayed about this this morning. There is something in our brokenness and sin and need to win where I think this venom, this asp analogy is so apt. There has to be something viscerally satisfying if you're a snake of getting a good bite on someone and pumping in as much venom as you could. And if that's not true of snakes, it's certainly true of me. Because to be in a position where, for whatever reason, fear and adequacy and need to win, when you get that one blow in, when you feel like you've won and your mouth sinks into soft flesh and you pump that poison into a loved one at that moment or into a friend or into an enemy and you feel viscerally like you have some release of your anger and your frustration and your bitterness. This imagery of pumping venom into another. The venom is the bile of my own heart, my own brokenness, my own insecurities, my own needs. And in reacting in the midst of an argument or a discussion that's turned into an argument or a self-defense, to get in that one good shot where I get around their other person's defenses and I sink my teeth in and I know from their eyes that I've hit. That I can see that their heart is feeling the effects of the poison that I have just injected into their life. And you see it because you know the difference in their eyes and their countenance when their defenses are up and it's just pinging off the top and when you get around behind and you really hurt them. Do I defend that? Do I say you started it? If you hadn't have said X, I wouldn't have said Y. You went personal. I didn't start personal, but I finished it. You see, the challenge is that if we're repenting, we don't tend to justify. Repentance doesn't have much in the way of a defense. It simply says, I was headed the wrong direction. I need to head the opposite way. I wasn't halfway heading the wrong direction. A 180 degree turn is a recognition that I was 180 degrees facing the wrong way. 
It doesn't negotiate. The throat is an open grave. It speaks death. God uses words to create life. John 1 tells us that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And when the Word was spoken, things and life came into being. But this side of glory, I do, I will, and I regularly practice using my throat as an open grave. I pull people into death by my words. The psalmist says that it doesn't have to be that way, but if I'm not cognizant of it, I will. And is there anything more freeing? Because if we go back to the the illustration of pumping venom into a loved one, or pulling a loved one into the grave with me, after the initial satisfaction of winning, which depending on how often you need the high, won't last long, like any other drug, it wears off pretty quick. And then you're left with the hangover, which is a loved one who is either now either more distant from you or a friend you've lost or a relationship that's been undermined and broken. And that momentary thrill of having won leaves us empty and broken. There's no life in it. And those moments where by the grace of God, you experience a choice to pump venom in or a chance to say no, to extend life, to give grace, to give mercy, maybe to speak truth and love and you still confront, but you don't confront to win. That moment when I have the opportunity to not share death because I am in my own way dying inside. And I don't use words of death on you and bring you into the same pit with me. Isn't that something close to freedom? To not have the responsibility of venom? To have freedom from pulling someone else into my grave? Paul says he's not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power to set people free. A mouth that is full of curses and bitterness is not free. A life that needs to victimize the other or is willing to do so in moments of brokenness and hurt is not free. Lastly, we move into verses 12 and 11 which are quotes from Psalm uh, 19. This is the one that we are most defensive of. When Scripture makes broad statements and we want desperately to cling to that idea that we're a part of that percentage that isn't inclined towards these things or doesn't presently practice them. You know I have an annoying way of looking up things that are problematic in history. And I was uh, doing some research on uh, the response to, well, enhanced interrogation, otherwise known as torture. And since 9-11, several studies have been done 
about the American public's view of those things. And broadly speaking, the statistics, the surveys, for what they're worth, seem to indicate that among evangelicals, about 70% of us, even to this day, are comfortable with it. 10% aren't sure. And 20% think it's a bad idea. Now, in response to 9-11, to senseless bombings of buildings and people, loved ones dying in Afghanistan and Iraq, we can all understand the desire to know as much as we can, no matter what it takes to know what we need to know. I just can't imagine, however, to use another story that'll tie in, that Jesus would leave this unaddressed were he to speak in our churches. I read another interesting article about lynchings from 1919 to 1939. And there was a story of a tragic event in a town in Missouri, just south of St. Louis. African-American man was strapped to an old church and the church was burned. That next week, for whatever reason, there were uh, a couple of events that were kept in church records in the churches in that town. One was a strong move for moral improvement through the closing down of a uh, bar. But what there wasn't was any indication that any of the churches found the events of the prior week at all disturbing or out of line with God's ethics. Did everybody in that town participate? Did every pastor feel the same way? I don't know. But I do know that if there is a chance that Jesus had walked into those churches on that Sunday following the lynching and burning of that man, His first sermon may not have been on the evils of alcohol. Something else may have struck him as more pressing. I use these illustrations and examples, hopefully in the spirit of Paul, with the good sense that to know history, our own history, And to let it rest that God, a God who knows every single heart, who knit us together in our mother's womb, feels that it is important in times of weight and significance to make strong, broad statements, to challenge His people to see themselves as a unified whole, collectively bearing and one another's burdens and the consequences of our actions and inactions. And so God in His strong desire for us to feel the weight of our calling to be His covenant light in this world says things that just frankly feel sloppy in our day of individualism. No one, God, really, no one understands No one seeks God. All have turned aside. 
God, I know that's not true because I remember the time you told Elijah that when he thought he was the only one, that you had people over here and you always kept a revenant. Why did you say it this way? We can even call God on his generalizations. But I would encourage us not to. God speaks to us what we need to hear. Elijah needed to know at that moment that God does continue to work and that life spreads. And there are times when God's collective people need to feel the weight of the cumulative effect of what happens when we may not be paying attention to the breadth and depth of our need to care for one another and to follow God and to repent. A general call to repentance because I know that in those moments when I am repentant and I hear the call for others, I don't see myself as apart from or better than. If I'm really truly repentant, I see myself in those who are wrestling with their repentance. Know what it's like to turn and to feel the need to pray for them as I pray for myself that God's Spirit would change them. Because I can't. I can't through bullying. I can't through preaching. Only the Spirit of God moves in the heart. There is a reason the Holy Spirit inspired the psalmist, inspired David, to write the words that he did in that psalm. To encourage us all, to encourage one another, that freedom comes from repentance from turning, not arguing the technicalities of God's generalization, but embracing the fact that God died and sent His Son for all. All might not come, but all are welcome. All might not have sinned in the exact same way, but all are recipients of the infinite grace of a God who does not choose between Jew or Greek, but calls them all his children. Knowing what they've done and knowing who they are, he knows what they've become in him, which is why he tells us to enjoy freedom and not death. So my wife encourages me to ask questions. Wrapping up this morning, where or what have I not repented of? Just assume, right? I mean, why not? What am I wrestling with repenting of? What have I turned 90 degrees towards, but I'm still got one eye like a chameleon going, I kind of like that road, but I kind of know I should head that way. Maybe you're stuck at 90 degrees with an eye in both directions. Where and what have you not repented of? Again, the point isn't here, salvation. We're about to jump into it's by faith alone, but faith in what and who? And why? Where have I not repented? Where is my vision not fully on Christ and what He's done? What sin do I still feel justified in committing? What sin do you still feel justified in committing? Whatever your, uh, your circumstances are, what do you still feel fairly justified in doing? can imagine then that part of what Paul is emphasizing here in this section of Romans is for that purpose. That we might feel the motivation, the encouragement,
to trust that God's love is really big enough for me to confess the sins I'm most dependent upon for my security and my identity. To let go of those sins, there comes freedom. There comes the freedom to hear Paul's words here and not to feel anger or frustration or judgment, but to say yes. And there but by the grace of God would I still be if it were not for the freedom that has set me free in Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, it is hard and weighty to have you remind us of what we are capable apart from you. And Lord, even as we wrestle with what it means to follow you, even as your children Israel wrestled with what it meant to embrace the truth of who you are, and to be the salt and light they were called to be. Lord, we still wrestle today. We pray that by your mercy and grace, we would be salt and light by resting in you. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.